our Father and our God. <laughs> the one who reigns supreme on this entire globe, who breathed it into existence, who will create a new heaven and a new earth. You, O oh God, are the sovereign one, and we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how you have reached out in time and space and allowed your son to come and die on a cross for our sins so that we could have forgiveness and we could have his righteousness, which allows us to come into your very throne room, and we thank you. Lord, if that's not all, you gave us the daily bread, this, that which sustains the, the, the basics of life you provide and you care for us. We marvel at your grace. Guide us as we go to the text this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would turn to Luke, not Exodus, Luke chapter 11. A couple of you said, I really enjoyed our study of Exodus. And I said, I, well, we got the Israelites to Mount Sinai. We're going back to Luke. So uh, that's where we are for several months. In fact, we will be in Luke even the, into the spring of next year. We'll break for Christmas time. We'll break for the missions conference in October. Uh, if you didn't hear, Andrew Brunson, a friend of mine who was imprisoned for two years in Turkey, will be our speaker at the end of October for our missions conference. And the theme of that missions conference is prepared to stand, which for the church we need desperately in this day in which we live. So we're going back to, to Luke's gospel, and we're in Luke chapter 11. And let me set you the scene in case you've just joined us or you have forgotten where our journey has led us. Dr. Luke is a colleague of Paul. They've traveled together, and, and Luke sets down to write an orderly account. He tells us that in Luke chapter 1. He's writing to Theophilus who is also a Gentile. Luke is a Gentile. And so as he pins this narrative, there are three, I think, three overarching questions that Luke is attempting to answer, not just in volume one, which is the Gospel of Luke, but in volume two, which is the book of Acts. And that is first, how does a person, or more, more so, how, how can one embrace this Jesus who was executed as a criminal under the Roman Empire? How does this relate? How does this fit in history? And the second question is, how do I fit into this equation, especially as a non-Jew? How, how do I respond to this Jesus? How can I be saved? And then the third question is, if we've embraced Jesus, what does that mean? And so we're in this section in Luke's narrative where in chapter 10 through 11, 13 is a whole call of discipleship and, and how that entails our relationship to the Lord, how it entails one another. And he comes back and, and concludes this section with this focus on prayer. And so in 11, 1, it says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. That phrase is often used by Luke in a certain place. When he stopped, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. In chapter 5, we are told that John and his disciples prayed and fast often. And so he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, may your name be honored 
May your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And do not lead us into temptation. The parallel text in Matthew 6 has a much uh, more exhaustive prayer that's been given. I think these are two different occasions in which Jesus is instructing his disciples. But he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and you go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because I've got a guest who stopped by while on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. Then he will reply from inside, do not bother me. The door is already shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though the man inside will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his first man's sheer persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. There's humor there, and we'll, we'll get to this in a minute. So I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened, unlike the neighbor's door. What father among you, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, would give him a scorpion? If you then, although you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to him who asks him? In your notes, if you're following along, you should have those there before you. I'm looking at, I think, a pattern for effective prayer is what the Lord is setting forth here. He's not expecting that every word be repeated. In fact, it's the spirit of the prayer that we need to focus on here and setting forth that we are dependent on God and we are desirous of His will to be done. So let's look at the text. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Here's Jesus praying. He stops, and unlike some servers at restaurants, uh, the disciples wait till he's done. And they say, hey, you know, you need to teach us how to pray. I don't know about you, but that is a really weird question for me. I go, whoa, 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 whoa. First of all, you are Jewish, and you've been taught how to pray at a yeah, very young age, right? So... Uh, you know, this should be common protocol. Secondly, you've been with Jesus. So you, what do you mean you, you need to be taught how to pray? And, and, and further, the text tells us John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray. Obviously, I think what we're dealing here is, is with the quality, the, the uniqueness that accompanies the prayer that is being set forth here in the text. This is what we're talking about. It's similar to asking an incredible ball player, hey, could you give me some tips on how to dribble? Or the pianist, man, you express yourself so well. Could you, can you give me some tips on how to do that? And, and they watch Jesus and his prayer life. And remember, nine times in Luke's narrative, we find Jesus praying. They're all at strategic points in the life of Christ. I can remember one of my professors saying, if Jesus, the Son of God, needed to pray while he was on earth, how much more we, right? Uh, and that's the point here, right? That Jesus understood prayer, and in Acts, of course, prayer is seen directly or indirectly in every chapter in the book of Acts as the church is birthed. And so it set forth this pattern, example of how we're to pray. In verses 1 through 4 then, as the prayer is set forth, we, we see uh, this, this 
example that's given, it starts with an address, it has two declarations and three requests. So let's just unpack this prayer and let's look at this. First of all, the address. Notice who we are to pray to, the Father. In fact, the term in Aramaic is Abba. You've heard that rendering, I'm sure. Abba or Daddy, Father. It's a strange way among first century Jews to refer to God. This is rare. This was abnormal to, to, to have that kind of a relationship with God. And it indicates, I would argue, two very important underlying truths here. First of all, it speaks of his authority, doesn't it? That God's authority, his uniqueness, you are dad, you are father, right? When my kids say, hey, dad, you know, is understanding Yes, can I help? <laughs> Who, you know, th this is the role you are playing, O oh Father, God in heaven. Secondly, it indicates intimacy, doesn't it? I know for some, perhaps in this room, you've not been blessed with a good earthly father. I have. I'm so thankful for my dad. Don't confuse maybe the poor relationship you might have had with our Heavenly Father. Who cares deeply? In fact, God sent the Spirit of the Son into our hearts, those who know Him as their Savior, the Spirit who calls our out Abba Father. 1 John 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. 1 John 3, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And so we have this amazing example that's set forth. First is to understand this God of the universe, the Almighty One, He's our Father. It's, it's so profound. We get into here, right? But then it goes to a declaration. And Jesus setting forth in this example, the first declaration is, Holy is your name, or Holy be your name. It's an acknowledgement of the reverence, the honor, and the consideration of the holiness that comes from the Lord Himself. It also removes us as the center of the prayer, doesn't it? It's saying, God, you are to be exalted. It is your will in, in that I want your name to be lifted up, your name to be glorified. And, and thus it gives us the goal, the purpose, the direction, and I would argue the manner for our prayers as well as ultimately our lives. And so in this first declaration, Jesus says, holy be your name. Secondly, in, this, in the next declaration, look what it says, may your kingdom come. <laughs> if nothing else that we have gleaned from the present state of our world and our country is the ever-growing desire for the Lord to return. Isn't there? <laughs> if you can't say amen, check your pulse. <laughs> right? I know it's Labor Day, but wake up. <laughs> Get the coffee. We, we long... For the Lord to return. We long for not only his name to be honored, his name, but also his work to be done, to be completed. A, a fulfillment of the promise God has made to his people. And so this declaration, holy be your name, the second declaration, your kingdom come. And then we get to the request. And the first is interesting, give us our daily bread. It implies a couple things. First of all, we need to be daily reminded of our dependence on the Lord. 
In the first century world where 2% contained about 80% of the wealth in the first century world in Palestine, and many didn't know what they were going to eat the next day, this is a very significant prayer. Living in the U.S. in 2020, uh, one, I don't know what year you're in, all right, that we, we, we don't see the urgency here the precarious existence. But like the Israelites with the manna, there's this daily understanding that we need to be dependent on the Lord. This is why we pray before we eat, or we should. This is God's provision for us, right? And and the Almighty has provided. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? If there's ever a time for a revival in this country, I would argue it's now. We see COVID and its effects. We see the effects of storms and earthquakes and global tension. If anything, it should remind the world, you're not in charge. I am. I could take your life like that. God says, I hold it in my hand. And we need to be daily reminded of our dependence. Lord, give us our daily bread. And it, secondly, it implies we have a God who cares. Right? Luke 12, I'm going to show you the cards. We're going to look at 12 later on, but here we are. Luke 12, 22, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the graves, the, the, the ravens. They neither sow nor they reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God has fed them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? Right? We can come to the Lord with our basic needs. I remember in my doctoral program the first year, uh, uh, ramen noodles became the regular staple, right? And you didn't have two dimes to rub together, so you were thankful for another package of ramen noodles. But after a while, the ramen noodles get really old. And I can still remember, it's like, Lord, I just need a hot lunch <laughs> in the cafeteria. I just do, and I, I'm going I'm to go and do it. So I went to the ATM machine. I said, no, I can't do this. I don't have the monies. I can't do this. This is night wise. So I left and it's pouring down rain. Hundreds of people walking down this main street and in the gutter is a 10 pound note. I said, are you serious, Lord? So I went and had a delicious hot meal and thanked the Lord for his provision. (laughs) It's, you say, well, that's crazy. But isn't that the Lord give us our daily bread, our provisions? Does he not care? If he knows the number of hairs on our head, which is changing rapidly for some of us, I I, I mean, does he not care? My son said, you need to get rid of the gray hair, Dad. Cut some of it, cut it out. I said, if I do, there will be nothing left, right? And third, we need to be content and thankful for God's daily provisions. We don't pray for T-bone steaks, and he often lavishes those on us, but we're talking about that which sustains the very nature of life. Proverbs 30, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you who is the Lord, or lest I be poor and still and profane the name of God. There it is. Give us our daily bread. 
the first request. The second request is forgive us our sins. And undoubtedly, I would argue this is the most difficult of the entire prayer. You say, well, don't you want the Lord to forgive your sins? Yes, but notice it's conditional. Did you catch that? Notice what the text says. Look at it. For we also forgive as we forgive others. And so the first implication here is our forgiveness is conditional on how we forgive others. It's interesting, the term sin and debt are used interchangeably here. In fact, if I was to read it uh, in the original, it would be forgive us our sins and we also are to forgive those who, who owe us something, have a debt against us. They're used interchangeably. However, think about this, sin is far worse than any debt we could have on this globe. Sin, there is no way to pay back our sin apart from Christ's death on the cross. Our sin is against an infinite majesty. We have debt upon debt with sin. Our sin is inexcusable. And a sinner who never turns to Jesus awaits something far worse than any debtor's prison. They await an eternity from Christ for all eternity in hell. And, and so we are to forgive. It's conditioned on this. And this leads us to the second part. Notice... Notice what he says, and, and forgive everyone. It's all inclusive. Well, yeah, you don't know my Aunt Jane. Aunt Jane, <laughs> I'll never forgive her. <laughs> or, you know, now the church is over a year old. I'm starting to know some people. I, I can't forgive them. You know, I got to find another church. <laughs> Go from one to the I, I can't forgive. You don't know what they did to me. Careful. Are you greater than God? I mean, you are a sinner saved by grace and what God has done. And, and think about the offense to God for your sin. And it's conditional. Our forgiveness of others is all inclusive. There are no exceptions and there are no exceptions to the sin that has com been committed whatsoever. God's standard of forgiveness is gracious. It's fully given and it's given often. St. Francis of Assisi, 13th century A.D., has this prayer. You've probably heard it. It's dynamite. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled or to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. Wow. In this example prayer that Christ gives, he said, listen, this is the spirit. If you're going to talk about how great God is and you want his name to be exalted, then you need to move out of the way. And that also entails holding grudges. That also holds all those wrongs that you've been done with, give them over to the Lord. Because otherwise, this is a really hollow prayer. Because his forgiveness, if that's what you're praying, is contingent on you forgiving others. I told you that's the most difficult part of the whole prayer. It's really scary. Well, I'll, I'll forgive, but I can't forget. <laughs> Careful. Because how is God's forgiveness as far as the east is from the west, he remembers no more. Oh yes, there's consequences for sin. I'm not saying that. Yes, 
we, we have some healthy boundaries on relationships where we've been erred, but we are to forgive. The first request is over bread, Pepperidge Farm. The second is to pardon sins. I don't have a P for the third, but the third request, do not lead us into temptation. That also seems a little strange too, because according to James, God doesn't lead us into temptation. Why would he take us into sin? But that's missing the whole point. The third request is a plea for spiritual protection and a call to direct us towards righteousness. Just as we depend on God for our physical, our, the basics of life, we need to look to him for moral triumph and spiritual victory. One Lucan commentator writes, The wise disciple knows that the only way to avoid falling into sin is to follow where God leads and to be dependent on him and his protection. I love, as you know, the Puritan writer Thomas Watson. He says, The tree of mercy will not drop its fruit unless shaken by the hand of prayer. Isn't that great? Father, do not lead us into temptation, the third request of this pattern prayer. Well, then he moves, Jesus does in verses 5 through 8, in, in the attitude that should accompany then our prayer. You, you, you kind of, I think the Lord knows, some of us are going to say, well, you know, then I just need to keep my prayers to a request to a minimum. You know, God is mighty, I'm just going to, and, and so he goes into this parable. It, it's, it's meant to be humorous, all right? So lighten up as we look at this. Uh, I know we're the frozen chosen at times, but just go into this, look at this. He says, number one, well, let's look at the characters, because this can be a little confusing. You have three main characters. You've got a man who has a who has a surprise guest. We'll get to him in a second. But you've got this man who owns a home and all of a sudden an unexpected visitor arrives. You can only imagine, right? It's late at night. We've got to get the inflatable mattress up the, while the wife goes cleans the kitchen and the bathrooms, right? I mean, freak out central. But what's worse in all of this is that there is no bread. There are no Costco's in the first century. So they don't have 20 loaves sitting in the pantry. Uh, nor is there the preservatives, which allows bread today, if you buy off the shelf, to last three months. But uh, none of that, right? It, it's made for the day, and that's it. And so there is none left. And you must understand, a first century culture, they, if you have an unexpected guest, you are to provide for them. Now, there's a limit how long that is, but uh, you're to provide. And so is the community, which we'll get to in a minute. The neighbor is just as guilty if there is nothing provided for this unexpected guest. And so the first guy that we see is one who, you know, there, there is nothing available. I remember my parents, we would often have guests over at our house after church on Sundays, and my mom would put that roast in the oven, and then we would arrive. And I remember so clearly, we got home, and the oven had never kicked on. It had that timer, you know? And, and my mom's kind of like the hostess with the mostess, and so she goes out, and she doesn't freak out, but it's close. And, and so we, we did the Kentucky Fried Chicken Run. But, you know, um, you can imagine the anxiety, the angst that's come here. And you have another, of course, that's the unannounced guest who comes late in the evening. And there's a third, and that's the neighbor. Now, again, the community is also responsible, so he should help out here. And he's saying, look what he says. 
do not bother me. The door's already shut. We've gone to bed. For me to take that bar off among the rings, I'm going to make a ton of noise. This is a small house. It's an open concept with a loft where we're all sleeping. I got to get down from the loft. I got to open that bar with those rings. I am not waking up my kids. If you have kids, you know exactly what he's saying. Wake up, I'm down at eight. I'm not about to wake him up. Are you crazy? Notice he never says, I don't have any bread. He's got bread. He says, I, I just don't, I, I, don't interrupt me. It, this is inconvenient. And if you're listening to this in the first century, that is, this is like fingernails across a blackboard. This is culturally shocking. What do you mean you don't? This is a disgrace. It's shameful. You are to provide. And the point of the parable is unlike the annoyed, less than cooperative neighbor who eventually, Jesus says, if you keep knocking, eventually he will open up. <laughs> so yes, because now you've woke up the whole household after all, right? That's the humor in this. All right, I'll give you some bread, give you some food. But what is the point of the parable is that God is gracious and willing to provide. I, I wrote, the gracious Lord who is more than just a friend or a neighbor, he's our heavenly father. He will respond to the request. Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord pities and fears those, fears them. He cares for them. He, he provides for them. I mean, think about it. The means he takes to notice our infirmities, our afflictions, he sees the righteousness of Christ that's been given to us. He seeks that nothing stands between us and danger. Nothing but good for those who have called his name. Good and understanding of becoming more like Christ. And he will not allow evil to prevail. Why? Because he loves us. He's our father. And so he says, come. And so the promise of our prayer we see in verses 9 to the end of this section, and that is there's three actions to ask, to seek, and to knock. Inviting us to pray, inviting us to, for purpose, pursuing through seeking, and then an invitation to come into his presence. All three of those promises are fulfilled in the text. Did you catch that? If you ask, it'll be given. You seek, you'll find. You knock the door, unlike the neighbor's door, will be opened it's an assurance. God will respond. He will. And unlike, he gives this analogy of the, the fish versus the snake, the egg versus the scorpion. I mean, think about those, those parallels. You've got the essentials necessary for life versus creatures that could lead to death. You've got the fulfillment of the request versus a mockery. And you have grace and mercy versus what the scandalous and even cruel, sadistic and then he says, how much more will the Lord do this for us? It's a phrase Luke loves. And did you see what Jesus states that will be given to us? Look at the prayer. Look what he says. If you then, although you are evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit? You go, whoa, where'd that come from? <laughs> The Holy Spirit is the special gift in all of this. It's the request because it's God's presence, his guidance, and intimacy in our lives.
think about the role of the Holy Spirit in your prayers. Let me give you four points if you're taking notes. The Holy Spirit gives the believer the ability and desire to pray. Secondly, the Holy Spirit assists the believer in his or her weakness, helping us in what we need to pray for. Think about Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You've been there? Well, I don't even know how to pray for this. I am in really deep trouble, or I, I'm really hurting. A wayward child, a marriage that's on the rocks. You, you fill in the blanks. Lord, I, I don't know how to pray for this. And the beauty is you've got the Holy Spirit that comes alongside and says, yeah, let me help. So it not only, the Holy Spirit not only gives the believer the ability, it not only comes along and assists, third, the Holy Spirit empowers the believer in his prayers, and fourth, the Holy Spirit indwells the believer, granting access to the throne of God. And so here you have prayer before our almighty God, directed to the Father in Jesus' name, empowered by the Spirit. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us and lead us not into temptation. Why? Because we're seeking that you be exalted. This is what we desire. Three points from this text that are there in your notes. First of all, effective prayer should be in submission to God's will and a desire that he be glorified. Think about this. This gives us purpose and meaning to our prayers. I've met believers who are downcast and depressed, and they say, well, I'm praying, and God doesn't seem to answer. I wanted this particular job. I wanted that particular position on the basketball team. You fill in the blank. You're going, whoa, whoa, whoa. What does God want? What is God's will in all of this? And so effective prayer should be submission to God's will and a desire that he be glorified. And that leads us to the second implications of that. God's power resources are there for those who seek to glorify him. Think about this. If the Lord wishes us to do his will more than we do, and he does, then will he not provide us with the resources we need? That's exciting. <laughs> That's good news. Alistair Begg states, if we are to cultivate habits of private prayer and devotion that will weather the storms and remain constant in crisis, our objective must be something larger and greater than our personal preoccupations and longings for self-fulfillment. There it is. You want the secret to effective prayer? Father, your will be done. That's what Jesus prayed in the garden, did he not? Gethsemane? Father, your will be done, not mine. Secondly, effective prayers are offered up with a spirit of genuine desire and a fervent longing. They're not flippant. They're not perfunctory, not trivial or rote memory. One theologian writes, the call to prayer means a call to work, not a summons to get going a machine which needs neither brain nor heart. It's a call to gather up all the forces of the soul and to summon them to the intense activity. It is indeed the highest exercise to which a man or woman is called. No wonder the disciples, seeing Jesus pray, say, hey, teach us to pray like that. 
That's something different than what we've seen among how we were raised. This is unique and it calls for hard work. Effective prayer needs a genuine desire and a fervent longing as they come before the Lord. And then third, effective prayers are made with an understanding of the great privilege we have as unworthy sinners to approach the throne of God. (laughs) It's the Heavenly Father who invites us to pray. It is Jesus Christ who made that way possible. And it is the Holy Spirit who assists us. There was a good old hymn sung many years ago, Sweet Hour of Prayer. Some of you know it. First verse goes, sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer that calls me from a world of care and bids me at my Father's throne. Make all my wants and wishes known in seasons and distress and grief. My soul has found relief and oft escaped the tempter's stare by the return sweet hour of prayer. I love the third verse. Listen to the lyrics. Sweet hour of prayer, thy wings shall my petition bear to him whose truth and faithfulness engage the waiting soul to bless. And since he bids me seek his face, believe his word and trust his grace, I'll cast on him my every care and wait for thee, sweet hour of prayer. Isn't that great? (laughs) This morning we come to communion. It It symbolizes the great sacrifice made so that we could even have an opportunity to approach the Father. And this is a good time as we go to pray and search our souls to ensure, because 1 Corinthians 11 is clear, if we need to examine ourselves before we take communion, because if we don't, we will eat and drink judgment on ourselves. In fact, Paul even says some of you are asleep, some of you are dead because you have come to this moment with communion wrongly. And so it's a good time to evaluate, Lord, how are we living for you? How, how do my prayers reflect my walk with you? In fact, I would argue if we could sit and observe your prayer life, we'd learn a lot about your walk with the Lord. <laughs> Spend some time this morning saying, Lord, forgive me when I don't seek to glorify you. When I, I seek to trump, try to trump your will. When I struggle not trusting you with those daily bread. When I struggle not forgiving, perhaps there's an individual you need to say, Lord, I turn them over to you. Or perhaps it's a sin that you've been toying with and you're not taking seriously, Lord, lead me not in temptation. Help me. So let's come to the Lord with that. Spend some time in prayer and then we'll go to the communion table.
Lord, we come to you and we are so grateful that we can. We can come to your very presence and you, you hear our prayers. And Father, often, I think in my own life, I go through the, the routine of prayer or perhaps I want to run ahead of you in my prayers. Father, we need to be a people who understand it's, it's all about you. It's not about us. Forgive us our trespasses. Forgive us our sins, Lord. As we come to this communion table, it's a reminder of what you have accomplished, your son has, on our behalf. And we thank you. It's because of what he has accomplished, dying on a cross, paying with his own life what we should have paid, and that was when he bore our sins. Then he rose again, he's victorious. And Father, we have the opportunity to come confess our sin, accept your son as our savior, and be called your children. Thank you. And as we come to this table, Lord, we ask, Bless us as we seek to exalt you and to continually have on the forefront of what you have accomplished for us. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a reminder. So this morning, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, this, this isn't for you. This is for those of us who know Christ as our Savior. This isn't a means for grace. Uh, this is a means to reflect and to recall what God has done for us. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, man, see me afterwards, see the prayer booth. We'd love to share with you how you can be sure you know Christ as your Lord. Jesus took that bread. Bread is quite an object lesson throughout Scripture, is it not? And be careful when you open that up. All right, <laughs> he, Jesus took it. He said, for I see from the Lord Paul's writing what I've also handed to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took a loaf of bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Hmm. Same way he, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the amazing gift of your son. Thank you that because of your son, we can come boldly to your throne. And you're not like the neighbor who says, hey, I'm in bed. <laughs> Don't bother me. Or the kids are in bed or the door is locked. No, no. You graciously pour out your love to us. And you desire that we be ambassadors for you as we seek to glorify you. Thank you. In Jesus' name.